in Grant County and San Juan. They dig the yellow stuff that makes the atom bomb. They do the uranium miners boogie. The uranium miners boogie. It's the uranium miners boogie. They dig digging all day long. You are listening to Men in Lead Aprons. Everything you might want to know about radiation, the good, the bad, and the not yet known. This is a regular podcast from the Columbia University Center for Radiological Research from the heart of New York City. And here are your hosts, Dr. Eric Hall and Dr. David Brenner. Hello and welcome back to Men in Lead Aprons. I'm Eric Hall and I'm joined by my fellow man in lead aprons, David Brenner. This is episode two, Nuclear Power and Fukushima. Well, good morning, David. And good morning to you, Eric. So, uh, in our first Men in Lead Aprons podcast, uh, we talked in general terms about radiation and its many applications as they affect our lives. Now, today we're going to talk about one particular application of radiation, namely nuclear power. We'll talk about the good side and the bad side, And we'll talk in particular about the Fukushima accident, which happened in Japan, what, about four years ago now, and what that accident has meant for the people in Japan, and more generally for the future of nuclear power. Uh, As always, there are arguments to be made both pro and con nuclear power, and it will be for you, our listeners, to finally come to your own conclusions. So, David, explain what is nuclear power. Well, essentially, nuclear power is generating energy by splitting atoms. And the technical word for this is nuclear fission. Uh, In particular, atoms of the element uranium, when they are split in two, they give off large amounts of energy, and it's this energy that's harnessed in nuclear power. So how do you split uranium atoms in two? Well, you use a particular atomic particle called a neutron, which is actually very efficient at breaking uranium atoms in two. And here's the key thing, here's what makes it all work. When the uranium atom breaks into two, it produces more neutrons, and these neutrons can then split more uranium atoms, which in turn releases more neutrons, and so on and so forth. So there you have what's called a chain reaction, and it's that chain reaction which is at the heart of uh, nuclear power. I see. So, So where does the energy in nuclear energy come from? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, Remember that the fission process splits the uranium atoms into two pieces, into two fragments, two smaller atoms. And it's these two fragments that end up heating up the uranium fuel. So the next part of that process is that cold water is continuously flowed over the hot uranium fuel. The water cools the hot fuel, and in turn the water gets turned into steam by the hot fuel. And it's actually this steam that drives the blades of an electrical generator that finally makes electricity. So if I understand you, in the end, a nuclear reactor just heats up water to make steam, and the steam drives an electrical generator. Isn't that just like any conventional coal or gas-powered plant? Yeah, that's right. Uh, But where the heat comes from to turn the water into steam, well, that's very different. And it's that difference which is the big advantage that nuclear power has over fossil fuels like coal and gas. We know that coal and gas are limited resources. Uh, I think people argue about when they're going to run out. Maybe it's 100 years in the future, maybe it's 200 years. But they surely will run out eventually. And on the other hand, uranium is a virtually unlimited resource. So there's, there's a big difference. 
And the other big issue, of course, for fossil fuels is that burning fossil fuels dumps carbon dioxide into the atmosphere with all the issues there in terms of global warming. Well, we know that fossil fuels have their downside, as you just explained. But what about nuclear power? Not without any downsides? Uh, indeed, nuclear power does have its own downsides. And really, I, I, as far as I see, there are two big problems for nuclear power. The first one is disposing of spent nuclear fuel. And the second, of course, is the possibility of nuclear accidents. So I think you need to tell us more about these problems. Okay, so let's start with spent nuclear fuel. The uranium in, in nuclear fuel gradually gets used up. Uh, every time a uranium atom is broken in two in the fission process, well, that's one less uranium atom in, in the nuclear fuel. And eventually, there's not enough uranium atoms left, and the uranium, uranium fuel rods need to be replaced. Well, that's, that's easy to do, just replace them. But it's the old fuel rods, which are now very radioactive and generate a lot of heat. And the question is what to do with the old fuel rods. And the bottom line is that we currently don't have a very good solution to that question, or really we don't have any good solution to that question. People have thought about loading them into, into a rocket and shooting them into the sun, or burying them deep underground, but really none of the solutions that people have come up with to date have, uh, have been satisfactory at all. So what is done with them now? Well, basically, they're stored in, in glorified swimming pools, un underwater in a, in a swimming pool, which are typically right next to a nuclear reactor. And that's why we wait for some bright ideas as to what to do with them in, in the long run. Speaking of which, uh, how many nuclear reactors are there in the United States at the moment? Um, well, actually, there are about 100 working nuclear reactors in the U.S., and they account for about 20% of, uh, of all our electricity in, in the United States. How does that compare with other countries? Well, some countries produce more nuclear power and most less. Um, the, the one producing the most is actually France, which uh, produces about three-quarters of, of its electricity from nuclear power. Britain is about 20%, which is uh, about the same as the U.S. Canada produces about 15% of its electricity from nuclear power. So we've talked some about the upsides of nuclear power, at least relative to coal and gas. You said there were two downsides. You've talked about one, namely the spent nuclear fuel. I presume the other downside that you have in mind is the potential for accidents. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and actually what stimulated this podcast is that Fukushima in, uh, in Japan is in the new newspapers again this week. Yeah, so I see. But Fukushima wasn't the first major accident at a nuclear power plant, was it? Uh, well, you're right there. Um, the first was actually in, in uh, England, in the UK, in Windscale, uh, back in 1956. And let me add, Eric, that uh, Windscale is actually just about 100 miles north of Liverpool, where I grew up. And uh, um, not to give away my age, but I was actually just three at the time of that accident. Well, maybe more of that later. What other reactor accidents have there been? Well, there was, of course, what we've all heard of, the Three Mile Island accident in, in Pennsylvania in 1979. Uh, there was the Chernobyl accident in the Ukraine in 1986. And most recently, of course, the Fukushima accident in Japan uh, four years ago in, in 2011. So that seems to be to be not bad. Four accidents in 60 years of nuclear power with no accident that was a loss of life. That sounds pretty good. 
Hmm, well, I'm not sure I would quite see it that way. Uh, four accidents is four too many, is the way I would think of it. All right, so let's talk about the Fukushima accident in 2011. What happened? Well, let, let, me, let me remind you of what I was saying earlier about how nuclear reactors work. So the nuclear fission process heats up the nuclear fuel and water is pumped on the, uh, over the fuel to keep it cool. And this water turns to steam and, and so on and so forth, as we talked about. So the bottom line here is an absolutely key component of a nuclear power plant uh, are its big water pumps, and they really need those for it to operate. So what, what, on March, March 2011, March the 11th, 2011, a massive uh, magnitude 9 earthquake hit just off the northeast coast of Japan, um, quite, uh, near the Fukushima nuclear power plant complex. Was there more than one nuclear power plant at Fukushima? Yeah, actually the, the whole power plant was uh, six uh, reactors, though only three were actually turned on and working on that particular day in 2011. So exactly what happened when the earthquake hit? Well, the earthquake hit, this huge earthquake, and the reactors, as they were meant to do, uh, immediately started to automatically shut down which what that meant was that essentially all electrical power was lost because the electrical power came from the, uh, the reactors. And so the main water pumps uh, in the reactor stopped working. But surely there must have been emergency backup pumps. Well, absolutely, of course there were. Uh, and as soon as the main pumps lost electrical power, these diesel-fueled backup pumps kicked in. But then the real uh, calamity hit. So about an hour after the earthquake, a huge tsunami, uh, a tidal wave, about 45 feet high, uh, hit the Fukushima plant. And the Fukushima plant is right on the Pacific uh, coastline. And here's where things turn seriously bad. Um, because amazingly, these backup generators were housed in underground basement uh, buildings. So, of course, they were immediately put out of uh, action by the tsunami because they were underground and got uh, completely flooded. So that meant the, that the reactors now had no water cooling at all. The main pumps uh, had no electrical power. The backup uh, generators got flooded. So what happened to the nuclear fuel is that it got hotter and hotter, and the, ex the extreme heat uh, inside the reactor resulted in actually the steam, uh, which is steam is water, which is H2O, uh, was converted to hydrogen. And, and we all know that hydrogen is highly explosive. And sure enough, there were a whole series of explosions, hydrogen explosions, in all three uh, Fukushima reactors. And in turn, that meant that there is the uh, radioactive materials that would normally be contained inside the reactor were released into the air. Not a pretty story. And was that all because the backup generators were housed in the basement? Well, yes. In, in retrospect, the whole accident really could have been so easily avoided with uh, some, some better placement of the backup generators. Oh, dear. So, so let's talk about the consequences of the accident. What exactly was released? Well, actually, a whole slew of different radioactive materials were released into the air and also directly into the Pacific Ocean. Um, by far, the two most important were radioactive iodine and radioactive cesium. So... Let's talk about radioactive iodine. What's, why is this so significant? So what, why radioactive iodine is important is that it gets taken up very efficiently into your thyroid gland. 
Well, actually, Eric, not your thyroid gland and, and nor, nor mine. It gets taken up very efficiently into children's thyroid glands. And that's because children's thyroid glands are still growing, unlike yours and mine. So what is the significance of having radioactive iodine in the thyroid of a child? Well, the significance is this radioactive iodine um, produces uh, radiation and is known to be a cause of thyroid cancer. How do we know that? Well, largely from the experience of children after the Chernobyl accident in, in Ukraine back in 1986. So the accident there was in 1986, and then starting in the early 90s, four or five years after, there started to be a significant increase in thyroid cancer among the local children there. Okay, so that brings us to the articles in the press in the last week or two, which claimed that there was a major increase in thyroid cancer among children of Fukushima. Is that true? Well, I must say I'm a little skeptical. I mean, it's, it's not that I think there won't be any extra thyroid cancers among the children at Fukushima. And based on what happened there, I, I really think there will be. So why the skepticism about these reports of increased thyroid cancer rates among the children at Fukushima? Isn't that what you'd expect? Uh, well, my, I, I have a couple of reasons why I'm skeptical of these reports now. Um, um, first, let, let's, let's think about what we mean when we say there's been an increase in thyroid cancer. Well, the obvious way to, to look at that is to look at uh, thyroid cancer rates in children now and compare them with thyroid cancer rates in children, uh, shall we say, before the accident. But of course, all the children in Fukushima now are being screened to see if they have thyroid cancer, whereas before the accident, uh, essentially no children were screened for thyroid cancer. And it's common sense that if you're looking more intensively for thyroid cancers, you're bound to find more thyroid cancers. And that, that's, that's technically called a screening effect. And we know this screening effect was there at Chernobyl, and I'm sure it will be there at uh, Fukushima too. If I understand you correctly, David, um, the screening effect whereby you find more thyroid cancers if you look for them uh, is specific to thyroid cancer because many people can have this type of cancer with no symptoms, and that doesn't apply to uh, most other cancers, I believe. So you said you were skeptical for two reasons. What's the other reason? Yeah, the second reason is, is the timing. Um, it's actually quite a sh short time since the Fukushima accident. It's about four and a half years since the, uh, the, the disaster at Fukushima. And we know that cancers typically don't appear for quite a few years uh, after radiation exposure. And looking at the Chernobyl story, most of the thyroid cancers there appeared between, shall we say, five to ten years after the accident. So it's probably a bit too early to be really seeing increased thyroid cancers at Fukushima. But that said, I do think it's likely that we will see increased uh, thyroid cancer rates among the children of Fukushima in the next uh, five or so years. And I would say I would not expect huge increases because the radiation doses were, were pretty low. And we should also keep in mind that thyroid cancer is just about the most curable cancer there is. Uh, but I think we will see increases. So that's thyroid cancer. What about all of the other cancers? Ah, well, here's where things become uh, distinctly less clear. So we know, in general, that radiation can produce pretty well any cancer. Almost all cancers can be produced by radiation. 
But the actual radiation doses to the people at, at Fukushima after the accident, they were pretty low. And the doses to people living further away from uh, were, of course, even lower. Uh, and at these very low radiation doses, we don't really know whether there actually will be an increase in cancer risk. And, and certainly we do know that if there is an increase, it will be a very small increase. And of course, about 40% of everyone will ultimately get cancer anyway, just from natural causes. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Four, four in 10 of us uh, ultimately will get cancer during our lifetime. And that makes it very hard to detect a very small increase in cancer risk. And I, th I think, actually, it's going to be almost impossible to detect a small increase in uh, cancer risk in general uh, at Fukushima among this huge number of, of naturally occurring cancers, this, your 40% your number. So there's going to be a, a large number of cancers just uh, naturally occurring. Can we, will we be able to see a very small increase? Well, I'm doubtful. I should say, Eric, that uh, trying to understand the cancer risks from very low doses of radiation, well, that's what we do here at uh, the Columbia University Center for Radiological Research. Um, but as we said, it's, it's a pretty tough challenge. So, David, let's try to sum up a little. Where do we stand on nuclear power? Where should we stand? Well, it's, uh, we have to look at the pros and the cons. So... On the, other, on the one hand, there are real issues with uh, fossil fuels, um, and anyway, they're going to run out eventually. And most people say we'll never generate enough power with alternative energy sources, such as solar and hydroelectric. So if, if those are true, ultimately we may have to go nuclear. And to me, the two big problems of nuclear power, which is nuclear waste storage and nuclear accidents, are both solvable problems which just haven't yet been solved. Uh, I'd, I'd be quite surprised if ultimately we can't solve the nuclear waste problem. It's a technical problem, and if history tells us anything, it's that we ultimately always solve the technical problems that we face. I'm a little less optimistic about the nuclear accidents problem. And the reason I say this is, is, is I look back on, on the four major accidents that, uh, that we've discussed earlier, the four major nuclear accidents, and essentially all of them were basically due to human error in, in one form or another. I mean, the Fukushima accident that we've talked about today, well, that was entirely due to putting the backup uh, water pumps underground, uh, which in retrospect just sounds crazy, but um, at the time it was not considered uh, so. So can we eliminate human error completely? Well, maybe, but it doesn't sound too likely. We know that the next generation of nuclear reactors have automated emergency cooling, which will work even when all the power is lost. So the thing that happened at Fukushima would not happen with the next generation of uh, nuclear reactors. But maybe there will be uh, a different dumb mistake built into uh, the next generation of nuclear reactors. It's, you can't say before, before the event happens. Well, thank you, David. Uh, I think there we have to end uh, this Men in Lead Aprons podcast. Now, our goal has not been to persuade you, our listener, one way or another about nuclear power, but rather to give you some basic facts so that you can make up your own mind about the question. It's an important choice for our children, and particularly for our grandchildren and their children. Mm -hmm.